Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at your word and that your spirit will be the, the teacher through all of this. We thank you for each person that's here tonight. And we just look forward to what you're going to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ezekiel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house, which looked eastward, and behold, at the door of the gate, twenty-five men, among whom I saw Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelah, the son of Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city. Which, I, which say, it is not near, let us build houses, and this city is the cauldron, and, and we be the flesh. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. So we see Ezekiel being taken again, and, it, and this one's going to be kind of interesting. It's going to say later on at the end of the chapter that he was taken in a vision, but while he's prophesying, we're going to see a man who dies while he's prophesying, so I don't know if this was an actual straightforward vision or if this was a translation similar to Philip. If you remember in Acts when Philip was taken to, the, to meet the Ethiopian on the, on the road, it just says he was basically translated. He was one place and he came to another place. And in his, it was a very true, actual uh, trip. This one kind of has this kind of a haziness to it. it and I'm not going to say it wasn't a vision, but there's a lot in it that makes it sound like it was something that he actually transferred himself and then ended up back where he started from. And if that happened to any of us, we probably would treat it as a vision as well. You know, I, if you ended up uh, walking down the street and you ended up in San Francisco and then you ended up back on the street, you would, you would assume that it was a vision um, and probably treat it that way. So I'm not going to be very hard, but when I was reading this, I had this opinion that I'm looking at this, and I'm going, this sounds like he actually got taken from Babylon to, to Jerusalem and back again. And I'm, either way, God can do it either way. He can make it a vision, and the guy dies in, in the vision. So, But he, he comes to this place, and he says he takes him to the east gate of the Lord's house, which is the temple, and the east gate is the main entrance. The temple looks to the east in its opening. And he sees 25 men, and amongst them is Jaazaniah. And Jaazaniah means God hears. And this is a guy who is named, named God hears, but he is not a godly man as, we're going to, as we look at this. And the other person's name is Belatiah, and that means God delivers. And uh, both of these men are have really wonderful names if they were servants of God. And then it said uh, in verse 2, God says, These are men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city. And how, what an interesting testimony that is that God has of them. This is the one thing I've always, you know, said as a Christian, as a leader, the one thing I want to hear when I stand before God is, well done, good and faithful servant. I would hate to have this be my testimony. They devise mischief and bad counsel. And mischief here is the idea that they are troublesome, idolaters, they are argumentative. And the other one is that they give wicked counsel. 
and counsel that is against God. And they're listed down as princes of the people, the leaders of the people. And again, we know that this is true because Jerusalem uh, was captured because of their disobedience to God, and God took them into captivity. And as he told Jeremiah, they went in the... The, the reason that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years was that for 490 years, they did not let the land rest and, and, and follow on, its, on the Sabbath days. And he says, you've missed, seven, you've missed 70 uh, Sabbath day, uh, years, and now I'm going to say you're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and the land will rest. And so we see this. They're going in because of the wickedness of the people. And this is the one thing we've shared with people. As our country gets more and more wicked, there will be an accounting for our country and for our leaders that they have to account for God because of their leadership. And we need to pray as Christians. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our towns. We need to pray for revival. And revival starts at the church and works its way out. It cannot change any other way. If you've studied the history of our great awakenings, they started with prayer and revivals in the towns and the churches and spread out. And then the country was brought into righteousness because of the change of people's hearts. And that is the way revival will always happen. It starts with individuals and then works its way up through the individuals into the government and positions of authority. And here we saw that the people would not listen and they were sent into captivity. And And he says, what were they saying? It is not near. Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. In other words, judgment is not coming. Mine says, let us not build houses. Huh? Mine says, let us not build houses. What version are you using? Uh, uh, Yeah, mine's totally different too. Yeah. For some reason, it's the same gist though. Same same idea. uh, Three. Who say the time is not near to build houses? That would be very incorrect. <laughs> because the whole purpose of this is judgment is not coming. Let's settle in. Build your houses. There's plenty of food. We're, we're, the, we're, the, we're the feeding of everything. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. That sounds wrong to me, too. So yeah. So because the people were saying this, and this was the problem, if you've read Jeremiah, they said the same thing. Jeremiah's preaching, and the false prophets were saying, oh, he's, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We're going to be delivered. And Ezekiel now is going back because, we've, as we said, he's in captivity. He's one of the people in captivity. But there's always this statement of the end is not near. We hear it in our own country. You know, there's no problems. You know, we're... We're, you know, we are just going to keep going the way it's always been going, and uh, they're not going to be judged for, for our sins. We hear it frequently, even in our own country. And throughout history, if you look at the different nations before they fall, it was always, we're strong, everything's going good, and then all of a sudden, they collapse. And God brings judgment on sin, whether it's individuals or nations or empires he will bring judgment on those who, bring, who sin. And usually those who are going to get that judgment saying, oh, everything's going to go on the way it's always been going on. There is no God to judge us or whatever else they're going to say. And judgment falls. And here the people were saying that very thing. Oh, we're, you know, just settle in. Settle in. It's no big deal. 
And this is something that is very much, even for us as Christians, we need to be very careful of. Sometimes we can get settled in in our sin and not think twice about it because we've just gotten so used to doing those activities. And God is saying, giving us warnings, giving us warnings, giving us warnings. Uh, especially if we're reading the scripture or going to church or going, listening to any preacher, we'll get those warnings. We need to be careful to make sure we hear with the idea that we plan to obey. And this is something that's so easy. Uh, Greg Glory said on the radio the other day, he goes, the easiest place to get a hard heart toward God is in the church. And it really is a true statement. If, if you are there just to hear, just to not, not to obey, you will get a hard heart toward God's word, again, toward his warnings. This is why even though I push very much that we read through the Bible every year, there's a, there's a flip side of that is that people can get familiar with it and, not, and they're reading it just to read it and not let it apply to their life. And we need to be in this place where when we hear from God, we apply it. And we are quick to obey. Uh, otherwise, we're gonna, God will have to do some pretty desperate things to us sometimes. Uh, I was talking to one of my one of my children one time, and they were telling me, uh, this happened in their life, this happened in their life, and this happened in their life, and I very foolishly asked them, are you ready to listen to God yet? Because they really weren't listening to God at that time. And uh, they decided not to talk to me for a little while. But, <laughs> but I knew that what God was trying to get their attention, and it also scared me that you know, how far did God have to go to get their attention? Because I've seen people who've had to have some very serious uh, event happen in their life before they finally say, I'm ready to listen to God. And we need to be very careful that when we listen, when God speaks, we listen and we obey. And this is something that is so critical for us because otherwise, you know, I've, I've told you all, I, you know, I, I used to be really hard, hard headed. God used to have to beat me over the head with a two by four for many, many times before I listened when I was younger. I'm getting better in my older age of listening to God quicker. But I used to be very stubborn with him and say, God, I can do this. I, I've got it. Uh, and be having him do some things that, you know, to grab my attention. And so we want to be very careful that we listen to God and quickly obey. There's that song, trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Yep. But we have to hear and obey, and that's, that is true. We have to be ready to obey. And many times, there's like three words in Hebrew for hear, and the one that's most used is to hear and obey is in there. And if you've ever watched any of those movies about the Arab areas, you, know, you hear that term, I hear and obey, you know, thrown around all the time because that is the way the the major way that the Arab world and, and the Hebrew world, that's their meaning for hear. Hear and obey. In other words, I'm going to listen and I'm, and I'm listening with the intent of obeying. And we've all been there. We've all done it at times when we've heard something with absolutely no intention of obeying sometimes, especially when we were children probably. You know, mom and dad said doing something and such and we heard it and it's like, well, if I feel like it, I'll obey, but I'm not planning to. And sometimes our, as employees, we probably did that. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do it my way anyway. I need to see that memorandum. <laughs> yeah. We miss 
that we didn't hear you, boss. Yeah, well, usually people heard and just chose to not right, obey. Verse 4, therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. The spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have you said, O house of Israel, that I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled the streets therein with slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh, and this city is the cauldron, but I will bring you forth out of the midst. I, you have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, says the Lord, and I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you into the hands of strangers and will execute judgment among, among you. Ye shall fall by the sword, I will judge you at the, in the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord." This city shall not be your cauldron, neither shall you be the flesh in the midst thereof, but I will judge you in the borders of Israel. But you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen which that are around about you. So here is the judgment that God prophesies through Ezekiel. He says, the Spirit said, speak, in verse 5, Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come to your mind, every one of them. This is something that's very strong for us to understand. God knows our thoughts as Christians. He knows the world's thoughts. And it says he knows every one of them. There is nothing in the mind of man that is conceived that God does not know. Which is why Jesus raised the standard of sin to, if you have thought a, th a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. If you're angry without reason, you've committed murder, because he knows that anger is the center part of murder. And we've always said, and when we talk about that, that doesn't mean the consequences are the same for, the, for having thought it as for actually doing it. But in one sense, the, the ultimate consequence with God is because it's sin. And the sin, sin leads to eternal uh, death. So, but he says, I know your thoughts. You think you're getting away with things. You think you're doing things that I don't, that are catching them off guard. And God says, no, I know your thoughts. And then he goes, I know all of them. And this is something we need to be very careful of. God's standard of perfection is asking us to have his thoughts coming out. And the only way we get his thoughts is by letting him fill us and then he will bring his word into us and then his thoughts will come out of us. It's the only way that our minds get changed. And in Romans they said, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word. We, and that transformed, I love that because the transformed literally is metamorph, metamorpho, which is metamorphous. He changes who we were into something totally different. And this is the value of God's word and how he changes. And, and the more you walk with him, the more you fill your mind with him, the more you become like him. Not because I'm beating myself over the head with a whip and a chair, taming my, taming my flesh, but God says, I am changing you. And over the years, it's been so simple. God says, are you ready to give this up? 
And I can guarantee you the first time you ask me to do that, you know, give something up, it's almost always no. And you probably all are the same way. And then after a while, I'm going, oh, you know what, God, I think I'm ready to give it up. And, and as soon as I say I'm ready to give it up, it's gone. It's not a real challenge on there. there it's just he takes the desire or the, the moving away and says, okay, you're willing to? I've crucified it. Here's your new, your new thing to fill it with. And this is the great thing about God. He does not leave us with that trials and the temptations. When it's time to get, to get rid of something, he crucifies it, and it's gone. And when we change the way we live, when we change the way we act, when I got saved, God did a few big changes in my life. And I was only 10 years old, but he made a few big changes in my life. And I always ask people to think about this. When you got saved, what did God do that was big in your life to make you a new creation? Think, and I really ask people to think about that. And it could be something as simple as he gives you a love for God's word, gives you a love for coming to church and being with God's people. He took a sin out of your life. There's usually something that God has done that's a really big change in your life that says, I am now the God of your life and I've made a change in your life. Now, we all know certain people, and I know many people, who seem to have their whole life changed <laughs> when they got saved. Well, I was not one of that, and the majority of the people I know are not in that category. But I know a handful that had their life totally turned upside down for God. Now, then, on the flip side, usually they're very impatient when people who don't change real quick. Because they look at their life and say, well, God changed me real quick. Why didn't he do it to you? And I go, I have no idea why God didn't change me real quick. It takes me, took him a long time to change me. And so we want to be able to look at that. And then in verse uh, five, uh, verse 6, it says, You have multiplied your slain in the city. You have filled the streets thereof with the slain because of their disobedience. Verse 7, Therefore you say, says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in the midst, they are the flesh, and this city is the cauldron, but I will bring to you forth out of the midst of it. A pot. A big pot. Big pot. You see this play on the words, though? They said, originally, build your houses, and we have plenty of food, and we're going to take care of everything. God twists the words around and says, you are going to be the cauldron, but not in the way they were talking about. Now he's talking about having them go through the trials and the, and the heat of it. And he goes, you are the flesh. He goes, but I'm going to take you out of the city. You're not going to rest. You're not building your houses. So God turned their own words upon them to say that you thought, you thought all these good things. I'm going to turn them around to show you that they're not good. And we see this several times in the scriptures. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, as he's getting ready to throw him in the fire, who is the God that can save you from my hand? <laughs> and I've always loved their answer. I go, we don't know whether our God can save us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we're going to serve him. And they were thrown in, and then Nebuchadnezzar had to eat his words. <laughs> and I kind of see this is, God does this frequently with things. If you think about when Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, what was their words? Let's see what happens with the, this babbler's dreams now. <laughs> and then years later, they get to stand before him and bow down in front of him because they actually helped accomplish and, and complete the, the words. 
But often God will make people, basically in our language, eat their words. <laughs> you know, God, can you do this? <laughs> Are you strong enough to do this? And God oftentimes will do this little twist on it and show, okay, you said this couldn't happen? Here it is. You didn't think this was going to happen? Here it is. You had faith in your own thoughts and reasons? Here, I'm going to twist them around and show you that what you had your confidence in became your weakness. And too often we as Christians sometimes will get very confident in how strong we are. Have you ever said or maybe heard somebody say, well, I would never fall to such and such sin. I can almost guarantee you in the time, time or two that I've done that, I found myself falling just in that area. And I've shared with people when I was in my 20s, if anybody when I was a teenager had ever told me that you would, there would be a time that I did not go to church and would you know, not read my Bible, I would have laughed at them because I was so sure that that was an area that would never fall. Well, in my 20s, I, got a, I have workaholic t tendencies and I got so busy in the, in, the, in the restaurants that I drifted away from church and for about a period of three years did not go to church. So often, the place that we think is our strength in our flesh will be the very place that Satan will take us down. Usually that's because we don't guard our strength as much. Now, I would never take this drink. I would never take this drug. I would never do this. And you, and you don't really guard that area of your life. And the next thing you know, something will slip in. Something will slip in. Because we need God to be victorious. We need to know that it's him that keeps us out of trouble. And God is not going to let our flesh stand before him anyway. God, I will never fall in that area. God will make sure we, he arranges it so that our flesh knows that he is God and that we need him. And he will not let our strength stand in front of him and say, look what I did, God. He's going to say, no, it's all me. And here he is telling these people what they had their strength and their, their confidence in was not going to be successful. And the Jews have always had this confidence in Jerusalem and the temple. That was, that was everything. And if you remember, even in the days of the judges, what their confidence was in the Ark of the Covenant. And they would send the Ark of the Covenant out with the army. And if you remember, one time they went out, uh, when Saul was in battle, he took out the Ark of the Covenant because he figured, this is our talisman. If we, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant with God's presence, we can't be beat. And the Philistines beat them and took the Ark of the Covenant away from them. And it went through all, of, all over Philistia and the major cities and causing all kinds of problems. Wrong attitude. They had their faith in the, in the actual ark and not in God. You know, the, the, ark, the, ark was the, the ark was the talisman. It's, it, we have the ark. If we have the ark, we have God's presence. And it was the ark that they looked at. Uh, after, over time, the, the bronze serpent that was in the middle of in the desert when they had the serpents, they came into the camp and bite them. And if they looked at the bronze serpent, they would be healed. Over a period of time, that bronze serpent became an idol, and they started worshiping the bronze serpent rather than God. This is man's tendency is to lift things up that they can see and worship rather than to worship God. Anything can become an idol.
for us as, as Americans, you know, we think we don't have idols. But we have idols all over the place. Many people's idol is their TV. It, it is the most important thing in their life. Some people, their car. I, I've, celebrities could be an idol for some people. Sports, their, their work. Many people, work is an idol. And for me, for a while, work was an idol when I was younger. It was 80, 80, 90, 100 hours a week and sacrificed everything, the family, the church, and everything for it. We need to be careful about what is above God. How do we know that something's above God? We think about, you know, one of the things I heard somebody do, they kept a log of what they did each week. And I was encouraged by a pastor that, you know, really a famous pastor, he says, keep a log of everything you do during the, you know, each hour of the, of the week, for a week, and then, then look at who your God is, because it will tell you. Now, some things we have to do, we have to go do our jobs, you know, for a full-time job, that means we're going to spend 40 hours a week at work. But beyond that, how much extra time do you spend at work? How much, what do you do on your free time? You know, that tells you very quickly, how much time do you read your Bible each week? How much time do you spend in church? How much time do you spend in prayer? These things will tell us where we are with God. And it's very important, and I've shared with people, I truly believe that God not, not only wants a tithe of our money, he wants a, a minimum a tithe of our time. This is something for us to consider. Are we giving him 2.4 hours a, a day? Do we give him... Uh, 16.8 hours a, a week. You know, how much time do we spend with God? Verse 8, you have feared the sword. I will bring the sword upon you, says the Lord. I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you into the hands of strangers who will execute judgments upon you. So God was saying, you feared it. You feared the sword. And he brought the sword upon you. Job had this idea that he feared that his children would sin in their parties each week, so he offered sacrifices for them. And they still ended up being judged and losing their life during, during his trials. And this is one of the things that, it's kind of an interesting thought. God seems to bring things that we fear to come to us or allow them to come to us. Why? Because we're really to fear only one thing, and that's God. The scriptures are very clear, uh, and I have mentioned this. I did a study on fear one time. I read all 1,500 verses on fear, <laughs> and they basically break out into three almost equal groupings. One group is just a very statement, they were afraid. No, no good, no bad, no nothing. It was just, they were afraid. The other set of verses are, fear not, okay? There's some 462 verses, I think it is, that say, fear not. The only thing we are ever told to fear is fear the Lord or fear God is what it says. And we think about this. This is something that's really important. God is in control of everything. No matter how much I think or worry about the future, I'm not going to change it. And nothing is going to come my way that God does not allow to come my way. So if I'm fearing things other than God, I'm really lifting them up above God. I'm turning them into an idol. And if you've, you know, I've, I've read it over and over, and it's a standard statement that 
nine-tenths of what you worry about or fear or are fearful about doesn't happen anyway. So you waste a lot of time worrying and being fearful about things that are in the future when you should be putting all your trust and fear into God and reverence into God because he's the one that's going to keep you safe no matter what happens anyway. And even if you come across what you fear, what you were afraid of, he's the one that gives you the grace to get through it <laughs> successfully. So you don't need to be worrying about it in the first place because he's going to give you the grace to get through it. He's going to give you the strength to get through it. And you'll be able to spend your time thinking about God. Because one thing that's very important to understand, when God gave his name to Moses, he said, I am that I am. God is the, the God of the moment that we're in. And for us as humans, we got to understand how many people live in the past. They are so regretful for the past and they cannot change the past. They're living in the past. There are a lot of people who are busy living in the future, worrying about everything they can't control, that they don't know what's going to happen and come across. And they forget to live in the now. God wants us as humans living in the moment that we're living in because that's the only thing that we can do. That's the only place we can serve him. It's the only place that we can do anything is in the moment that we are in because as soon as it's gone, we can't change it. And we have very little control over anything in the future. And I share that a lot with people. Every one of us, when we leave this building, are planning to go to our homes. Chances are we will make it. But there is absolutely no guarantee. And the further we have to go to get home, the, the greater the chances are of something happening in between the two places. We need to be living in the moment that God gives us now to live in. Because this is where our divine appointments come in. This is when we're going to meet those people. And how many of us have missed an opportunity and we realize we missed an opportunity because we were thinking about what we're going to be doing and we walked right past somebody that needed attention and we realized it later on. Well, that person said something. I should have been able to minister to them and I wasn't even thinking about them. This is one of the things that I've, I've shared with people, and I'm getting better. When I go to a store, I'm, I'm, my purpose is to go in and in, get what I want and get out. I can't tell you how many times I know that you know, people have later on said, well, you walked right past me. You didn't even say hello. Maybe I've missed lots of opportunities to share with people because my mind was so focused on what I'm going to do and basically in the future. We look at what Jesus did. He was often on his way to someplace else when he stopped to minister to somebody on the, on the road. On his way to minister to a young girl who was dying and he, and he healed the woman with the issue of blood because she touched out and, re, you know, touched out and reached him. And then he resurrected the girl who, who, who he was going to go to in the first place. You know, we see this over and over in Jesus' life. He's on his way, but he was never so busy that he would miss the opportunity to share God's power and love with somebody. Unfortunately, I can't say that I've done that. <laughs> Many times I've walked past things I needed to, needed to do. And our challenge for us is stop and look around. What is God doing? Blackaby and experience and God said, we need to look around and see what God's doing and join him. Don't get so busy in our life that we go... God, I'm over here. Uh, come, and, come, and, come and join me, God. 
And we've all done that plenty of times in our life. God, I'm over here. You know, I, want you, I want to be blessed. God, bless me for what I'm doing. And God's over there saying, uh, well, I'm over here. I've got a big work for you over here. And we get so busy and focused on what we want. And it's a danger we have to be careful of. And it says, you know, the fear will come upon you. He says, I'm going to bring it. Verse 10, you shall fall by the sword. I will judge you in the borders of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This statement, when I was studying this last night, stood out on me. That you and you shall know that I am the Lord. That statement in the scriptures is used 31 times either Lord or God. 25 of them are in the book of Ezekiel. <laughs> Ezekiel was trying to tell the people God wants to get your attention and he wants to show you that he is Lord. God wants to show us he is Lord. We're his children and he wants us to know that he is Lord. And he will do whatever it takes <laughs> to show us that he is Lord. If we're soft and tender, it's just a quick read of the word, a message from somebody. Yes, Lord, I see that. Yes, you're wonderful. And, and we walk, and we walk in the, the power of that easy testimony. If we get hard-headed and hard-hearted, he's still going to show us that he's Lord. It's just going to hurt more as he has to hit us over the head with a two-by-four or worse but he is going to show that he is Lord. We think about what he did for Israel in the Exodus. You know, first he had to show Pharaoh that he was Lord, and he sent ten, the ten plagues to, to Egypt, totally decimating Egypt. And we've covered that in the past. You know, he totally destroyed them economically and their, with death and took away their army through the, through the Red Sea. Israel left and, and Egypt was decimated. And it would have been the time when they were taken over from the north and they had the dynasty change at that time because there was no army to defend themselves with. It had been drowned. And the people were totally devastated. Then he showed them mighty miracles to Israel. He fed them for 40 years in the wilderness with manna. Gave them water from rocks. Yeah led them, gave them victory to show them that he is Lord. And how many times did they forget that he was Lord? Yeah. How many times? You know, right at Mount Sinai when he's given them the Ten Commandments, they start worshiping an idol. Because they said Moses has been gone too long. He, he must have got lost up there in the mountain. It's been 40 days. And they started worshiping a golden idol. Started griping that they were hungry and God judged them. Judge, you know, griped about their leadership and God would judge them. He kept showing them, I am the Lord. And sometimes we look at them, we need to be careful because sometimes we look at them and go, how could they be so foolish? But we do the same thing in our day and we've got the whole word of God to be able to show us. Now they got to actually physically see a lot of stuff. But we have the advantage of knowing it, but God still shows us things. He still puts trials and tribulations in our life but he wants to show I am the Lord and that can be a good thing when we're following him this can be a great thing when we're following him and God says I want you to change this part of your life okay God and you change it and he rewards you for it 
I've shared with many people, I am a firm believer in a tithe. I don't talk a lot about it, but I'm a firm believer in a tithe. And I've tithed probably all my life other than the two years that I was, three years that I was walking away from the church. And I go and I do more than the tithe. God has pushed me more than the tithe. But I've challenged people, just as God says, give the tithe and watch what he does. God blesses the tithe. Even more importantly, I have worked with our church that our church tithes money. And God has blessed the church as we have tithed in the church. And every church that I've seen that tithes out of their money that's given to them to other ministries has been blessed. God honors the giving. God honors the giving of our time. He honors the giving of our strength. And he says, I'm going to reward. I'm going to make it good because God loves us. And when we depend on him, he returns and says, thank you. It is what I wanted. All right, verse, where did I leave off? 11. This city shall, be, shall, be, shall not be your cauldron, neither shall you be the flesh in the midst thereof, but I will judge you in, in the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done after the manner of the heathen that are around about you. God says, you have not obeyed me. You're not doing what I told you to do, and you're acting the way the heathen do, the world does. And this is something we have to be very careful of. If we do not work hard to keep our mind on a biblical-centered mindset, we will, we will follow the world. And it's very easy to follow the world. If you're not into God's word, and, and this goes back to the Romans 12 that I said, be not conformed to this world, it is easy to be conformed to this world. All you've got to do is spend your time reading the world's books and watching the TV and the movies and spending the time with the world and you will be changed to be like the world because we have a tendency to be like the world anyway because we are flesh. And our flesh desires to be like the world and have sin. And God is saying, I want you to think differently. We as Christians should be out of step with this world because this is not our home. We should not be finding what the world thinks is funny, being funny usually. And I've shared with you all, I hate jokes about marriage because I do not find anything about joking about marriage funny. Uh, I do not find these little things when people go, well, I've got to go home to the old ball and chain or the battle axe or whatever, they, you know, all, the th- all the stuff they would say. I've never thought any of those terms were funny in any way, shape, or form because God has a very sacred place for marriage. And the minute you start belittling it, you, you start making cracks in it. And we need to be very careful. What do we find humorous? What do we find is part of the world? The world bombards us with all these things. If you watch any TV show, we see all these movies and TVs where adultery and fornication has no consequence because that's the way the world looks at it. Okay, go ahead and have sex with everybody because there's no consequence. And God says, no, there are consequences. It's a sin against the body to do these things. And then a sin against God and all the other places that that becomes a sin toward. 
and yet we watch it so often we get a weakened position on it and we don't have as big a deal on it. We watch murders happen so often that we start losing the sanctity of life. Even though we may not want to go commit a murder, we, we go, okay, well, I've seen enough movies where there was, well, it seemed like it was okay. They had a reason. It was for good or whatever, whatever you think about it. And it softens our position from God, God's point of view. We see people, we see this, sugary sweet love that people get married on for the wrong reasons and then we wonder and then we watch how people get married because they feel like they're in love rather than being in love and then wonder why marriages fall apart we have to be very careful god says certain things and we need to put his word number one and be able to reach out and move forward in those areas god's definition in leviticus of honesty was anything that is not the whole truth is a lie. Now, how many times do we use that as our standard of truth? You know, I love it in the courts, and I've, I've used this example because I've seen it actually happen. You know, on, on, in the court, you're, you're, you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And the, and the very thing your lawyer is going to tell you is you answer just the question they answer and you give them nothing more than what you have to give them. So what they're telling you to do by God's standard is lie. Answer just what they asked you, but don't tell them the whole story. God's way or the world's way. We have to make these decisions all the time in our life. How are we looking at what we are doing? There's a statement, and I hear it from a lot of people you know, when, they're, when they're married. Well, you can look as long as you don't touch you know, to, the, to the opposite sex. Well, why would you want to be looking? That's against God's standard. And yet the world says, well, that's okay. As long as you don't act on it, you're okay. We have to be very careful about the things that we let get into our mind and, and slip into our mind. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about when we hear the word prehistoric man. When we were talking in, in Genesis about God creating everything, there's really no such thing as prehistoric man because it all goes into history. But what do we think when we hear prehistoric man? We think of some form of evolutionary, all half monkey looking thing that was grunting and groaning and had no intelligence. That's a world's picture that we as Christians shouldn't have. But I know when I say that, people think in, in those terms. Why? Because that's what science has beat into your head. That's what the movies and, the, and the, all these other shows have put into your head. We need to be careful to say, what does God say? We need to filter everything that we think on what is God's view on this topic. And it takes time. It is not something that's going to change instantly for people. But it takes time for us to get to the place where God's word and his biblical viewpoint is what's important to us always. And the more you study, the better off it's going to be. The more you look at it, the better off you're going to be. But it's going to take time, but you need to be also cognizant of it. When you come across a thought and going, where did this come from? You know, where did I get this thought? And I can almost guarantee you'll find it, if you look hard enough, you'll find it in some book you read or some class you took or some movie you read or you know, something that you were taught that's going to be the world's way of thinking that you didn't filter through God's word. And that's why 
we're metamorphed by the renewing of our mind through his word. We keep reading his word. We keep looking at his word. We keep saying, how does this apply? How is this something I can use? And every time we come across something, every time we get these thoughts, where did they come from? God's word or the world? And Satan has lots of lies out there. He has all kinds of lies and tricks and, and ways to try to, to get us to think the wrong thoughts. And we need to be ever vigilant to say, I'm going to want to make it God's way of thinking. And it takes a lot of, lot of, a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of being in his word, a lot of hearing God's messages, which is why I tell, tell you all, and it's very true, if you sit in my car, you're going to hear one of two stations on the radio and they play preaching. <laughs> I will have to say that I have not been, been that way all my life. I've always listened to at least Christian music pretty much. But it's only been in about the last 15 years that I pretty much want to listen strictly to preaching and teaching. Because that's where I've grown to at this point in time. But I realize the vitalness of hearing God's word being taught. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want to build your faith, you've got to be in God's word. Because you've got to start thinking the way he thinks. You've got to start acting the way he wants you to act. And that only comes from just the inflow of his word and the inflow of his word. And it's, it's, the word is described as water. And water cleanses things with, by the flowing in and out. If you have a wound, you, you, if you let it run, on running under, uh, put it under running water, it will clean it out and clean out the, the, the garbage. And that's the same thing that will happen in our mind. The more of God's word we put in it, the more of God, the garbage it'll take out and replace it with. But it's all, it takes effort. Yeah. We, don't, we don't just become somebody who thinks like God. He, he starts us out with the right action. He fills us up. But he's also very much the gentleman. He's not going to force himself, force us to change the way we think. He's going to say, I will allow as much as you want. And the more we allow him to work in us, the more we allow him to crucify our flesh, the more we will think like him and the more we will become like him. And the more we become like him, the more we will show forth his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And then people will be drawn because they're going to see him. He gets lifted up, I get, I get buried, and he gets lifted up and people are drawn to him. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. God doesn't drown me with it either. He gave me a little at a time. So now I'm accepting, accepting more and more. Little at a bit by little bit. Like you said, it's not being overwhelmed with it to where you end up have enough of it. But you like, I like you going little at a time, precept by precept. Mm -hmm. Yep. Verse 13. And it came to pass when I prophesied that Belath the son of Benaniah died. Then fell I down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And this is kind of an interesting, this is why I kind of believe that there, he might have literally been translated and thought it was a vision or if he saw in the vision, but this is kind of an interesting thing. Belatiah, the son of Benaniah, died. Remember what we said uh, Belaniah's name means is God delivers. So Ezekiel is preaching this message, the prophecy that God's giving him, and the person whose name is God delivers dies. And we see how 
Ezekiel takes this. God, the one who's got your name on as the deliverer has died, God, are you going to destroy the remnant? This is he falls down to his face and he just begs God, are you going to destroy the remnant? Now, for us who know that this is a, you know, from the whole Bible, we know that this was not something he needed to worry about because God has always had a remnant of people. When Elijah said to, went up against the prophets of Baal and he runs away, you know, he he runs for 120 miles and then gripes to God that I'm the only one God and God says, no, I've got 7,000 who haven't bent their knees, Go go back to where you're supposed to be. And we see a remnant. A remnant of people are always following God. All through the scriptures, there's a remnant that is following God. God is never without a group of people bending their knee to him. And we see this in Ezekiel's day. There was a remnant in Babylon that were continue, continued to worship. We see it in Jesus' day. There was a small group of people that were worshiping. Even with the church, over the many centuries that the church has been, the Christian church has been maintained, there's always been a remnant of faithful followers. Even in the middle of Europe, when the Catholic church was trying to do things that kept everybody away from the real Christian faith, there was a faithful following. In England, when they had the Church of England, you know, they're trying to destroy Christianity, there was a remnant of Bible-believing followers. In Russia and China, when they were closed countries with the, with the, to the gospel, there was a remnant of the church in all those countries. God always has a remnant of people following him, lifting him up and serving him. In the end days of, of, of Revelation, we see a remnant that is not going to be following the, the Antichrist. Even after the church is gone, God says, these are the ones that are following me. Starting with 144,000 Jewish evangelists and keeping on through there that the millennial kingdom will start with those that followed God through the tribulation. There's always a remnant that we follow. And I looked up a bunch of the words, uh, the remnant. There's all kinds of verses that talk about the remnant, but God always has had a remnant of followers. He is never so if you ever feel like you're totally alone you're the only one that's following god that you know be aware that there are others out there and you might even ask god god i need help i need i need to meet others and i've done this on various occasions when i was at business meetings and stuff away from town i'm going god i i just need to see some christians because i don't need to be putting up with all of this and very quickly christians would be brought into my midst and we would enjoy the rest of the night talking about god I've, I've heard people tell me, well, I've been looking for a church. I go, how long have you been looking for a church? Oh, about six years. I'm going, nah, I think you better talk to God and then re- ask him to find a church because I've moved around a lot in my life and it's never taken me more than about three weeks to find a good church. Usually it's in the first week. God, show me what church to go to and I'll drive past three or four churches and I'll stop at some place and and then a lot of times never go to another church in that town the whole time I'm living there because that was God showing me the church. Now, will we find a perfect church? Absolutely not. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And if there was, you probably, I couldn't go there because I'm not perfect and I would mess it up. 
So I'm not going to be able to find a church, perfect church, and if I did, I'd mess it up, so it shouldn't go anyway. But we find a church that's serving God, looking to do the best that they can for God. And there are good churches everywhere. And the most of the problem is a lot of people are trying to find the, the perfect church, the one that is perfectly attuned to them. And that is not going to be found. You're not, I'm never going to find a church where, the, where everybody believes exactly what I believe even. I need to find one that believes the Bible and does a good job handling the Bible. And then worship there. Be taught and learn. And I don't expect anybody to believe everything that I believe. Because number one, I know I'm on the minority side of a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my beliefs. Uh, but what I believe, I believe. And as long as you can feel comfortable in what you believe and you can give a reason for it, which as Peter said, be ready to give a reason for what you believe. That's all that really matters. Can you give a reason for what you believe? I can give you a reason for everything I believe because I've studied a long time for all of this stuff. I don't believe it just because Pastor, Pastor Jim uh, 30 years ago told me that's what it meant. Uh, I've researched everything out and said, yes, this is what I agree with. This is what I believe God is saying. And it's important. Paul praised the Bereans. Why? Because they searched the scriptures to see if what he said matched the scriptures. And I encourage everybody, be good Bereans. Get in and search out whatever you hear being taught. Because the teacher may teach inadvertently incorrect. And they may be very honest in what they believe. And they can be honestly wrong. And there's people that I believe are honestly wrong in what they believe but because I, I believe something different. And I know that they're not being malicious. But I also know in some cases it's not a life or death, heaven or hell issue. And I don't worry about it. And, there's only, and I've told people there's very few things that I think that are heaven or hell issues. One is that Jesus is the Son of God and he is God. He died for our sins and he rose again for our, for our victory. He's the only way to, to heaven. And the only other thing besides Jesus that I have a very strong opinion on is the word of God is absolutely true and all correct. Because if it's not all correct, it is a worthless book. If I have to pick and choose what is right and what is wrong, I might as well throw the book away because it doesn't mean anything. It all has to be right or it's not valid. If I can be the God that chooses what's right and wrong, then there's a problem with it. Outside of those, I feel very strongly about the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I feel very strongly about baptism. I feel very strongly about ties. I feel very strongly about a lot of things. But I don't have to sit there and argue with somebody and make them twist their arm to believe it. I will, given the opportunity, we share and, and interact and give you the reasons why I believe what I believe. But it's each, up to each person to stand or fall before God in those areas. But when it comes to salvation and the word of God, we've got a, and Jesus, we've got a different, those are absolute. Without those, we don't have Christianity. The rest of them are all, you know, some are more important than others, but they're not worth breaking fellowship over. They're not worth dividing the church over. Even though there may be very important doctrines involved. You know, the church broke up in the early days over, the, over communion. Whether the, the bread and the wine became the actual literal body and blood of Jesus Christ or not. And it split churches 
over that issue. And we want to be careful. We want to be careful because God has certain things that are absolute truth that we have to grab hold of. And we want to, and there are salvation issues. You can't get to heaven or hell without some of those issues. But we need to be always aware God has a thing that he's looking for and he always has a remnant following him. Always. No matter how strong Satan comes against the church, there will be a remnant that's going to say, we're going to follow God. I'm willing to die for God following him than to bend my knee to what the world's trying to take it to. And we want to be very sensitive to that. All right, let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to stand before you. Lord, we ask that you help us to, to be the remnant always and that we will be strong in our walk with you and that you, we will let you guide and lead us in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.